Good evening and welcome. Thank you for joining tonight. Uh, interesting conversation with Mark McKinnon. I'm Marvin Singleton. I'm the past uh, vice chair and a board member of the World Affairs Council. The Pulse on Politics. Mark is a political advisor, reform advocate, and creator of Showtime's The Circus. With his knack for innovative political coverage, we look forward to getting his take on the emerging presidential politics and the state of our upcoming election. Moderating the event is Council President CEO Liz Brailsford. A special thanks to the Council's institutional partners, AT&T, Dallas Baptist University, Dallas College, Harwood International, Haynes & Boone, Lockheed Martin, NEC Corporation of America, PNC, and Sidley Austin. The Council's Global Young Leaders Program provides essential opportunities for educators and students to expand their global competence and international career prospects. Some of them are with us today. Thank you, Linda and Richard Schaefer, for your generous support of our Global Young Leaders Program. Thank you to our promotional partners for this program, the Dallas International Film Festival and the U.S.-India Chamber of Commerce. If you're not a member yet, please join the Council. Visit dfwworld.org for more information on membership or at anyone in the tables outside when you came in. I'm sure they'll be glad to talk to you. Lastly, I encourage you to donate to the Council's annual fund in support of civil discourse by engaging with the Council. You know firsthand how important collective curiosity can be. Help us inspire more this season by donating on our website or by scanning the QR code on the annual fund flyer that you will find in your chairs. A reminder, as a courtesy to our guest and speaker, please silence your cell phones or other devices as we begin. Liz, I'm going off script introducing Mark. Uh, I've had the pleasure to work with Mark for some time period. Um, he started off uh, growing up in Denver, in Colorado, and he decided after school, like anyone else at that time, to get his guitar and go to Nashville, where he plucked the guitar for a little bit, and he slept on this buddy's couch while he tried to make it, and that buddy was Chris Christopherson. So when the Kerrville International Folk Festival, or at the, at the time, uh, called, Mark said, hey, Austin, that's kind of cool. So he went down there, and he liked it so much, he just decided to move there. And then when he was there, he realized, maybe this isn't my life's calling, and he went to school at the University of Texas. For those UT, he was also the editor of the Daily Texan and got involved and gotten the bug to bite him on politics. Um, his journeyman as a, uh, a campaign manager includes individuals that you'll hear more about, President Bush 43, Governor Ann Richards, and then Charlie Wilson, just to name a few of the interesting individuals he's worked with over his life. Mark currently resides outside of Breckenridge with his wife, Annie. He's got two girls, and then he has two grandkids that keep him busy all the time. Um, if you want to know more about the Leadville 100 bike race and how hard it is to finish after 12 hours, he can tell you. Um, he's a, a dear friend and one of the most political savants I've ever met in my life. Please join me in welcoming Mark. Well, hey, Mark. Hi. So glad, happy to be here. You know, I, it, uh, I love the time I spent in Texas. I, I lived here for 35 or 40 years in Austin, and I, I feel like I kind of hit the sweet spot of the Austin years, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and got out just at the right time. But uh, it, was, it was never ordained that I was going to ever end up in Texas. In fact, just the opposite. Growing up in Colorado, there's this weird Colorado thing that, that a lot of people have about Texans. And I spent a lot of time as a kid making ice balls to throw at cars with Texas plates. <laughs> and uh, so if you'd asked me growing up where I was going to end up, Texas probably would have been 50th on the list. And, uh, but it was through an odd set of circumstances that I ended up in Austin in the mid-'70s and absolutely fell in love, first with Austin and then with Texas. I mean, I just completely fell in love with the history and the state, and and uh, I just I spent four fabulous decades here, and and uh, just great memories and lots of great chapters with Marvin and 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 Ann Richards and Charlie Wilson and George Bush and Bob Bullock and uh, just so many great epic Texas characters that I I had the honor uh, to to work with and work for. So I love any opportunity to come back. So thank you for having me. Well, well, maybe we'll talk about other opportunities to, to get you down here. 
<laughs> uh, thank you very much for being with us tonight. I also want to thank Marvin for connecting us. Marvin, thank you very much, and thank you for being a longtime supporter. We have a very interesting world right now. And uh, there are a number of multipolar crises going around the globe, and we could talk about any number one of, uh, any one of those. But tonight, we're going to talk about the state of our democracy and the current election cycle that we're in. And actually, talking about you coming back to Dallas, you heard it here first. We're going to have a Mark McKinnon part two in September with former Mayor Mike Rawlings for our endowed lecture series with Mike. And the two of you are going to be in conversation because I think there's going to be, oh, a million things that are going to happen between now and September. Oh, just a few. Just a few things. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to tee up the conversation, and then I'm going to kick it over to you. But here are some interesting points that are relevant to tonight's conversation. About half the world are going to head to their elections to choose their leadership this world, more than ever in history, including seven of the 10 most populated countries in the world. And these are elections are going to be consequential to our futures across the globe. About uh, in recent years, The Economist magazine reported that the state of democracy around the world fell to, a fell to a record low. And in fact, 2021 was the first year since they began tracking it. The world has seen five consecutive years of a negative democratic trend. Here at home, the current 118th Congress is the least productive Congress in decades. They've only voted on 34 bills that have become law, including some that were entirely not controversial, like the one of a minted coin commemorating the anniversary of the Marine Corps. Important, but not controversial. For reference, recent years have seen the norms of 300-plus bills voted through. We have some of the lowest popularity of what appears will be two of, the, two of our presidential candidates, Biden and Trump. Many Americans may not realize that we are in the longest experiment of democracy in the history of the world, and that it is not guaranteed. As President Obama said, we all share the most important office in democracy, citizen. Yet we've lost civil discourse and gained polarization. Recently, we have mass distrust of American institutions, government, and the media, which some call the fourth branch of government. And now, we are 264 days away from the election. So, Mark, <laughs> all that being said, we're going to talk about what is going on. Let's start with no labels. Can you give us an overview? of no labels? What's the impetus? And why do you think it's going to be successful when so many third party candidates have failed in the past? Great question. Let me, let me kind of open the aperture a little bit and, and talk a little bit about some of the things you touched on, which is uh, I think that many of you are here because you obviously are part of this council and you're engaged citizens. and. And if you're like a lot of us, you're worried. <laughs> you're just worried about, I mean, you touched on a lot of the things. But um, you talked about the, the experiment of democracy. Uh, I, for our television show, uh, a documentary series called The Circus, and one of the interviews that I did was with Mitt Romney. And I went into his office. And he has this uh, very interesting map on his wall that I uh, I asked him to, to, to describe for me. It's a very long, narrow map. And it, it's a, a map that's a lot of different colors. And it maps all of our uh, civilizations from the beginning of time to now. And there's only one through line that goes all the way from the beginning to now, which is China. Um, and, and you see lots of other colors start and then stop, and then others start below it. And you get on this very long map that's probably, I don't know, five feet long. And democracy starts at about a quarter inch from the bottom. And you realize when you look at this what a relatively new experiment this idea of democracy is and how fragile it is. And, uh, and, and we've, we've seen in, in recent years uh, that 
that it's much more fragile than we thought, and that it's, I think we made a lot of assumptions about our institutions and, and how they'd stand up and the guardrails of democracy, and we realized that it's, uh, I, I had an interview with John Bolton, who uh, worked for President Bush, who, whether or not you agree with his politics, he's a pretty good uh, historian, and he said something that really got my attention. He said, Mark, he said, there's, there's really nothing, I just, I think like others, I certainly was a victim of it, I just had this notion that we're moving, that we're progressing, <laughs> that historically we're making progress. He said, there's, there's nothing in history that says that. We go backwards all the time. And uh, so uh, I, I just, I, I'm, I stay engaged because I'm a prisoner of hope uh, and uh, I'm gonna keep suiting up and fighting for this thing we call uh, uh, our American ideals and democracy because I, 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 there's no other choice uh, and it's, it's, it's really important. But, I, but it just seems like there's, there's so much going on in the world today, not just America, but so much is challenging us uh, and that, that makes it more fragile in these times that we're living in. Um, and uh, I, I mean, you just talk about, I mean, there's so many factors, but disinformation, let's just take for one thing. I mean, how do we even know what is the truth anymore, right? I mean, we have artificial intelligence. I, I mean, I, can you imagine what's gonna happen with artificial intelligence in this election in the next nine months? What sort of like nefarious things people will do next October with artificial intelligence? It's pretty scary. And you know, when you look at people have lost faith in all our institutions of government, including the Supreme Court, you know, so when you lose trust and you don't know where to get facts, it really becomes a, 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 it creates an anxiety. I suffer from an anxiety about what's happening in our country. And, and so uh, that's why I've, I've tried to stay involved because I keep, want to keep rolling this rock up the steep hill because we've got to. And uh, so you asked about No Labels. No Labels is, a, is an organization that I helped start, uh, boy, uh, almost 15 years ago now just with the idea that I'm a radical centrist. I work for Ann Richards and I work for George Bush. That's a demographic of one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've seen it on both sides and I think there's really good people on both sides. And I think that, uh, that in order to get anything done, we have to work together and there has to be compromise, there has to be consensus. And it's, it's really tough seeing the sort of harsh partisanship that's happened over the course of recent years. So I saw how the system was sort of designed to, to fund echo chambers from the partisan left and the partisan right, and there wasn't much support for people in the broad middle of American politics. So I thought this idea of no labels of, you know, let's just work together and problem solve, get people together in a room, find some places where we can work together. That was the general idea uh, many years ago, and then I went off and started doing this documentary series. So I haven't been formally involved with it in quite some time, but I'm very familiar with it. and. Um, uh, and I know the players, and so your question is about this third, is about third parties. And so let me back up on that a little bit. First of all, I just as a general proposition, thinking the greatest democracy in the world, maybe there should be more than two choices. I mean, if we're the greatest democracy in the world, should it just be a binary choice? It's just like Coke or Pepsi? How about some Mountain Dew? Uh, <laughs> And, but the system, I know because I, I've been through some exercises before to try and get ballot access for candidates, it's, it's almost impossible. The system really is rigged against uh, other options because it's extraordinary, I mean, the, the, it, well, I, I, it's, a, it's a longer conversation, but you, I'm sure you can imagine what the Democratic and Republican parties have done across the country to make it hard for third parties to get any traction, and it's incredibly expensive. So, no labels had this idea, not totally unique, but it was kind of like a, a former effort, which was to say, listen, the problem is if we get to next May or June, and everybody wakes up and says, oh my God, we have a guy who's got a healthcare crisis and another guy who may be going to jail, uh, how about another option? Well, you can't, you can't start next May and just suddenly pop up a third party candidate, you have to get on the ballots on all these different states. So what No Labels said was, 
we, we're not, we're not going to preordain who the candidate's going to be, but we're going to pave the road so that if somebody decides to, they want to run next May or June, they can do it because it costs $50 million or more to just get the ballot access. So we're going to, we're going to just, we're not going to make a decision about a candidate yet, but we're going to create the, 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 the runway so that it's possible that if we got to next May or June and we were unhappy with our choices, maybe there could be another option. So that's where they are now. They've done this ballot access despite lawsuits from secretaries of state and threats and incredible, uh, incredible uh, pressure from, from, from the establishment and uh, you know, with a, a little band of people and a bunch of interns. And they've, but they've done a good job of getting the ballot access. And their idea is simply that they would put together a unity ticket, which would be a Democrat and a Republican uh, that they think in these partisan times might be attractive. And they think this might be the time to do it because uh, depending, I mean, all, all the polling you look at, nobody's very happy with, with, with the, the nominees in either party. 74% of the country wishes neither one of them were running. So that's, that's a pretty ripe environment for an alternative. The question is, who would that alternative be? I don't know yet, and I don't know that they know yet. But it could be Joe Manchin and, and Mitt Romney. I mean, that's a ticket. It could be Liz Cheney and Joe Manchin. It could be, could be Nikki Haley and Joe Manchin. Uh, <laughs> uh, or, sort of take your pick. Um, now, here's, here's the important point about this, that there's a lot of hysteria let me back up one more second. One of the things I hear in politics all the time that drives me crazy is X won't happen because X has never happened before. And I say, oh, you mean like an actor was never elected president? Like a peanut farmer was never elected president? Like a black man was never elected president? Like a real estate billionaire from New York was, is never going to be elected president? They don't happen until they do. And, uh, and so this notion, everybody says, oh, a third party can't happen because it's never happened before. Well, as you may recall from Dallas, there was a guy from Dallas who at one point in uh, 1992, uh, was it 92? Mm -hmm. it was 92, was beating Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush, two pretty popular guys. And if you know, a couple things hadn't, you know, if he hadn't talked about the CIA invading his daughter's wedding, that it may have stayed on the tracks. And, <laughs> Who knows? I mean, he was getting 39% of the vote at one point in that race. So uh, if you have a viable candidate uh, or a viable ticket, of course it's possible. Anything, I, listen, given what we've seen in American politics in recent years, I did a show for 130 episodes, and almost every week we were shocked by what happened. Every week we think, you know, nothing crazier could happen, and then it did. So. Um, so it, it is uh, possible, and, and in this environment, you'd say, well, if 74% of the country's not happy with their nominees, this would be the time to do it. So they're going to have a ticket. I don't know who it'll be, and, but, but the, what they've said is that they're going to roll it out, and it's a moonshot, of course. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, they're not going to do it. If they get to May or June and they have their Cheney Mansion ticket or whatever it is, and it turns out they pull it 20%, and Joe Biden's at 35 and Donald Trump's at 35, they're not going to do it. They're going to pull it down. Now I've got a crazy other theory that I don't know if you want me to go into or not, but uh, I'll save that. We'll circle back. I, you know, we've hosted Manchin and Haley in recent, uh, about, in about a year or so, and I'm trying to just picture them together now. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, well, I, I, actually, I could really picture them together because I think they're both very savvy. They're yeah. very smart. Yeah. Um, you think about Haley. I mean, here's the interesting thing about if Haley were the nominee of the Republican Party, this is where you think, why aren't voters more strategic? She'd be beating Joe Biden by 15 points easily. And if Gretchen Whitmer were the Democratic nominee, she'd be beating Trump by 15 points. So both parties have elected nominees. Yeah. They have much better options than what they've got. But uh, Haley, just as an as afterthought, I mean, she is certainly burning her bridges with Trump. So. I would just say it would not be out of the realm of possibilities for her to, to take a call from no labels. Yeah. 
Uh, you uh, said rig early on. You've got to be careful with that, you know. You've got to be yeah, careful yeah, with yeah. that. Uh, you also mentioned healthcare crisis. So I'm going to skip ahead for a moment and, and talk about this. So there's been all kinds of presidential gaffes through the years, from President Nixon to President Ford, from President George W. Bush uh, on to Presidents Obama, Trump, and now Biden. Okay, some of the gaffes are pa packaged online. You can find it. Is President Biden falling in line with this commonality, or is there a cause for real concern? You mean in terms of like the gaffes? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, um, first of all, you have to be, you can't be 66 years old and be a pilot or a park ranger in America. Okay? But you can be 81 years old and run for president. Now, I look around this room. And there's a few people here that are kind of in my demo. <laughs> I know that I'm not nearly as, as quick, energetic, bright on top of it as I was 10 years ago. Uh, and I'm almost 70, OK? 10 more years, I'm going to be a lot slower than that. This is running the most important job in the world. People have experience. Either they're old or they know people who are old. They have grandparents. They know what happens when you're 80 years old. You know, and the reality is, in my opinion, you should not be president of the United States when you're 80 years old. Nobody should be. I don't think Donald Trump should be. I don't think Joe Biden should be. But I also know how difficult it is. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, when, you, when you've been president, uh, it's tough to leave. But Joe Biden said, not implicitly, he said explicitly, I'm going to be a transitional president. He said that he was going to hand off the baton to another generation of Democrats, and he didn't. And he has jeopardized the election, I think, for the Democrats by running for re-election with this notion that I alone can do it, which is kind of what Donald Trump said. Well, I think there's lots of other talented people in the Democratic Party that could do it. And just it's unfortunate because he has what I think is he could it could have been a very good legacy. I think he said there's a lot to of accomplishments, a lot to be proud of. He could have taken the gold watch, handed off the baton, and said, and he, you know, it didn't have to be, didn't have to anoint Kamala. He could just say, we're Democrats, we compete, go at it, and let everybody run. Now, we had a conversation earlier, and this may still happen at the convention. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that, listen, if I'm Jill Biden, and, you know, and in April, uh, you know, Biden has some sort of health-related event, she may get in his ear and say, you know what, let's, let's not do this. Let's not do this. So let's say the health-related event happens after he's elected president, if that was to happen. Um, and God forbid something would befall him like that. But what's your assessment of Kamala Harris being ready for president? Well, um, boy, it's a very complicated question. Um, I, complicated because um, I, I've, I've spent time around her just not a lot, a little bit. Uh, and I was impressed with her. I thought she was very good. And, I thought she, and I've interviewed her for our show. Uh, and I, I, you know, she's she's got a, a really good resume. But I, I say all that. I know people that know her a lot better that are much more critical of her, and they're critical of her leadership styles. They're they're, uh, and these are Democrats. It's not Republicans. Uh, and so there's a great f there's a great fear among Democrats that she would be uh, a, a liability. Uh, as a candidate or as a president, they just they don't like her leadership style. I think a lot of it's unfair. I think some of it's racist, um, but I think there's some there there too. Um, and so, I mean, it, the, I've heard it from enough Democrats and enough people who know her to say, uh, the, 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 there, there's there's some issues there with her leadership style and leadership capability, what have you. So, but that that complicates things for Biden. So let's talk about President Trump's lawsuits. Uh, he had one this morning even saying, okay, the trial must go on. We're going to start on March 25th. How do you see this playing out as we go through this year? Well, talk about surprises, right? And, and just sort of things that drop your jaw. I mean, just think about the notion that somebody who's been indicted four times has 91 counts against them and is stronger than they were a year ago. Um, but 
what we know now is that, that he has very, uh, very specifically and very effectively turned that into a partisan attack so that his base believes that every one of these things is done because Democrats just fear Donald Trump and that it's all political and that there's nothing to it. Um, but there's, um, what we do know from, from, from some data that we've looked at, which is that uh, it has strengthened him with his base, it strengthened him in the primaries. It became kind of a litmus test to, for primary voters to say it was a tribal thing. You know, our guys under attack support, defend him. If you don't defend him, you're not part of the tribe. And that's kind of, that's a lot of what Nikki Haley's dealing with. Um, the question is, what does that do in the general election? And of course, that's, again, why Nikki Haley would be much stronger in a general election. She doesn't have any indictments. Or, uh, but um, the research shows that it, a conviction would have an impact on Donald Trump in the general election, even among Republicans. Uh, I've seen data that shows up to 50% of Republicans would be inclined not to support him if there was a conviction. Uh, I don't think that that, so now it's all a question of timing, and that's why this, there's been so much about Jack Smith and Tanya Chutkin and, and now the Georgia case with, with Fonnie Willis, which is just a train wreck. Uh, I mean, you talk about playing into Trump's hands. You've got a, a prosecutor who has a, a, a relationship with uh, one of the prosecutors that she hired, but now, if the stories are true, she was not true about what happened in that relationship and who paid for what. And so, I mean, and there's Donald Trump just saying, I told you so, I told you so. But there's, there, the question is, uh, it's, 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 what's gonna impact the election? What's, if anything, what will go to trial? Now, because if it goes to trial, if, if the you know, lawyers here, you know that it, the public opinion is one thing, but you got 12 people you got to convince. Mm. And 12 people, when they see evidence, evidence is evidence. And they have, will have a very strict fact question to answer. And if they see evidence, uh, there's, there's the, the, certainly the possibility that Donald Trump will be found guilty. I don't think that's going to affect him at the convention because, again, I think what it'll, the tribe will it'll become a, a real purity test then at the convention. It's like, our guy's not only been attacked, he's now been convicted by these partisans. Are you with us or against us? And that'll be a, a convention. But I think it'll have an impact on the, the general election for people to say, listen, do I really want to really vote for a guy who's been convicted? Now, the thing that the research doesn't show or reflect is the question doesn't get And what will happen, that'll be appealed, right? Whatever a conviction there is, is, is going to be appealed. So there's not going to be an ultimate conviction, yep. I don't think, before the election. Yeah. So how does that affect people's opinions if it's conviction, but it's on appeal? Conventions, uh, July 15th, by the way. So that's when it starts. Uh, Democratic Representative Tom Swazi just won in New York, taking the seat of former Representative George Santos. Uh, is this Democratic win a hint of what's to come in the general? Well, um, it's, 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 it's the first good news that Biden's had in a while, and it's the first good news that Democrats have had in a while, and um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a special election because it's a special election, and it's, it's special because it's different, and it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's not a typical district, and it's in New York, and there's so many variables, so, but, uh, you know, it's the only variable we have to look at right now. So, of course, everybody's going to overanalyze it uh, to death. But, but there's some good news for uh, Biden. There's some good news for Democrats in that election. This is a former, con this is the seat for George Santos, the great fabul fabulator, fa fabricator. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, a, a Democratic uh, congressman who had been a for formerly in Congress won that seat. Uh, uh, but, they're taking, uh, among the uh, lessons that Democrats are saying we come out of this election with is 
that Swazi's a pretty moderate guy, um, and he was able to talk about the border issues in a way that didn't hurt him. And of course, a lot of people are concerned about the border being a huge asset for Trump and Republicans. I mean, Trump and Republicans are winning that issue by 30 points or more. I mean, it's a lot. Biden doesn't have to win it, but if he can neutralize that issue a little bit. And what's interesting is that there was a, a very serious proposal to solve the border crisis that had a ton of support from a lot of Republicans, and Trump killed it. And it's, and it's pretty clear that he killed it for political purposes, that he, he doesn't want a solution. He wants to use it as a weapon to say, Biden fucked this, screw this up, excuse me. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I alone can fix it. So he didn't want a fix on the table because Biden would get credit for it, right? And that's where our politics are today. It's so bad that somebody's going to take off a humanitarian crisis that's affecting lots of people's lives to say, we're not going to fix it because I want some political advantage from it. So, but that's what Tom Swazi said. And, and so if, if Democrats and Biden can effectively say that, listen, yes, there is a border crisis, and I don't think Biden's done that enough. I, I think that part of the problem for Biden is that not only that he hasn't done much on the border, but he doesn't seem like he's really cared about it that much. Mm. But I think if he can now say, listen, we had a solution, uh, and Donald Trump simply wanted to use it as a political weapon, uh, I think that helps neutralize the issue. And, and Tom Swazi, that's exactly what Swazi did. That's what he said. He tapped into So that. I think Biden will take that lesson to say, listen, I, but by the way, part of that message is to say, Biden won by saying, I'm going to stop the chaos. And so part of what Biden can say on the border thing is, listen, we had a solution to stop the chaos on the border, and Trump wanted to continue the chaos. Trump is just going to be more chaos like he was before. So uh, I, I think there's, it was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small uh, slice of, of uh, uh, you know, experience to take away from recent, uh, uh, a recent election, but it's the most recent thing we had to look at, and it was a good sign. It was, it was helpful for Biden. So uh, this week, the House impeached Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, and as we know, President Trump was impeached twice before. So do you think that we're going to see this uh, more and more as a political tool? Yeah. Uh, I, that's, that's been the fear all along that, that it would be just increasingly used as a political tool. And impeachment is supposed to be for high crimes and misdemeanors. And uh, there's some flexibility in what that means. But it certainly doesn't mean a disagreement in policy. And that's basically what they're impeaching Mayorka for. They don't agree on his approach to the border. And because it's a, a policy disagreement, uh, they've decided to impeach him. Now, it's, it's this, the Senate's not going to go along with this. So, but I think it's, it, it, impeachment has become a, a, a reflexive political exercise that I think we're going to see on both sides of the aisle. And it's just another example of the deterioration of our politics. Well, speaking of deterioration, uh, we have three House vacancies right now. They were all resignations, and they've all cited frustration with the U.S. political game. And after the impeachment this week, Rep uh, House Republican Mark Green announced his, uh, he, he's not going to be uh, running for re-election. Several others are not going to be seeking re-election, and they're all kind of citing this frustration. Are, do you think we're just going to be seeing this more and more? I mean, what's going on? Well, would you want to be in Congress right now? <laughs> no. I mean, it's, it's uh, it, 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 I mean, anybody I know who served there, uh, most of them have left. Uh, I mean, it's just, it is, you know, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. I mean, Chip Roy, who's, you know, the Abbott's former chief of staff um, from near Austin, uh, very conservative guy. I mean, he's, he's been running around saying, this is ridiculous. We're, we haven't gotten one single thing done. And uh, you know, the, the current speaker, I think, there's, is in big, big trouble. Uh, and, and he may not last much longer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're all you know, pining for the days of Kevin McCarthy now. <laughs> 
Who is uh, one of the resignations, as we probably yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, so it's a pretty miserable place, honestly. Yeah. And, 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 and unfortunately, a lot of the people who are replacing them are pretty miserable people. Yeah. So thinking about who you would pull from the bench, and let's uh, no, no labels aside, but who would you pull from the bench on both the Republican and the Democratic sides? Biden and Trump aside, no labels aside. Well, listen, I am a, a you know, old George W. Bush, John McCain guy, and there's just not much left of that Republican Party uh, these days. I mean, Trump has taken it over wholesale refashioned it completely in his image. So those sorts of, you know, standing up to Putin, those sorts of things that, you know, uh, uh, that attract, I mean, the, I was attracted to George W. Bush because of his message about compassionate conservatism. Well, I don't see any sign of compassion in, in, in the version of the Republican Party I see right now. Uh, so it's easier for me to actually answer that. I mean, I love Mitt Romney. Uh, I, 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 uh, he was always a terrible candidate, but it was always really good once he got in office. Um, uh, but but he's but he's pretty old now, you know. And so uh, I don't see a lot of younger bench in the Republican Party, except for the you know they're they're all Trump bomb throwers. The younger ones are, and I, I don't see compassionate. So the version of the Republican Party that that I would support or endorse is. Uh, has disappeared, and so um, I think that the only way that the, the version I knew uh, and respected would be resurrected would be if Trump loses in the fall, and then somebody like Nikki Haley pops up and says, well, I told you so, let's rebuild this thing. Um, I think there's a lot of talent on the Democratic side. Um, I, I, Gretchen Whitmer, I, I think the Democrats would be very smart to elect, uh, to nominate a woman Midwestern governor. I mean, I just think that'd be very smart. Uh, and I think that she's a big talent. And um, uh, I love Mitch Landrieu. Uh, we, we talked about our New Orleans. We had a New Orleans connection here somewhere. He's a, uh, a, a former mayor of New Orleans, a very talented guy. Um, Josh Shapiro uh, is a really talented guy. Pete Buttigieg I like a lot. Uh, Buttigieg is really one of the best communicators I've seen in politics in a long time, and he's—I love him because he goes into the lion's den. He goes onto Fox News, and you know, and and will tangle, and he, he gets a lot of respect for that. And I like the idea of going into opposing camps and articulating your view of what the world is. And um, uh, so, um, but it's just a harder question for me on the Republican side because there's just not many of the sort of Republicans. That were in the you know the mold of the John McCain's that I that I see out there, and they, because if they are, they're getting kicked out of the party. So let's uh, let's pivot a little bit. Uh, you mentioned Putin, and we are the World Affairs Council. So <laughs> uh, we have Tucker Carlson interviewing President Putin, President Trump encouraging Russia to quote do the hell do whatever the hell you want with NATO members who haven't paid their 2% two, uh, 2 of their GDP to defense spending. And now we have Putin backing Biden. So what do you make of all of it? Did, did, we, did we see this? This came out today. Yeah. So President Putin said, well, I, I, back, I uh, back Biden. So what do you make of all of this? Uh, that's, that's what I'd call a, uh, a KGB double reverse right there. <laughs> I know what you're doing there. I know what you're doing. Well, well, again, it's 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 just. I mean, if you know, if I had told John McCain that you know uh, that uh, that we'd be where we are today with Vladimir Putin, I, I mean, he'd be rolling over in his grave, and I'm sure he is. The Tucker Carlson thing is just astonishing, and what's even more astonishing is that you know Putin now is making fun of Tucker Carlson. Uh, saying that was kind of a bullshit interview, and uh, you know, just really, you can just see him putting the screws to him uh, in classic KGB style. Uh, but this is a you know a completely different approach to uh, foreign policy, and um, again, it's so antithetical to Reagan, Bush, and the whole doctrine of the Republican Party, and to stand up to Russian aggression and Vladimir Putin. So it's you know it's 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 left a lot of people uh, homeless, and I'm one of them. <laughs> uh, yes or no answer, one word. 
will we be able to vote through separate aid and border packages? Yes or no? Oh, man. I, 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 yes or no? No. <laughs> I don't think so. OK. Uh, how will our geopolitical crises, you've got Russia, Ukraine, you've got China, Taiwan, you've got the Middle East, you've got uh, North Korea, perhaps. That's, they've been popping up a bit more in the last couple of weeks. How is that going to factor into our presidential election this year? Well, there's, again, I kind of go back to my anxiety, and I just, it just, it feels like we're living in a more and more dangerous world all the time. And you kind of stack up all the things with Ukraine and Russia and China and Taiwan and what's happening now in the Middle East and Gaza and Israel. I mean, that's splitting the Democratic Party in a way that, uh, that we haven't seen in a long time. That's creating, uh, I mean, a, a, amazing fissures within the Democratic Party. Uh, and then, I mean, there's just a, a tinderbox in the Middle East with Iran and Iraq, and you kind of conflate all that. And so uh, any one of those things could scramble the decks for this election, I think. Yeah. And um, so I, 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 I'm, you know, uh, this is part of why Biden was elected, was that he had a lot of experience in foreign policy was a stabilizing force. Um, but, you know, I think there are, Donald Trump and a lot of Republicans think that we've spent too much money in Ukraine and, and it's an endless war and it's a waste of money. And there's a lot of people that agree with that. Yeah. I want to ask you two quick questions and then we're going to do a very brief round robin. Okay. And then we're going to flip it over to you. Uh, we're in a wretched era of polarization right now in our country. And we all know it. We all face it every day. Uh, what is or are the causes of this, and how do we get out of it? Mm. <clears throat> well, uh, I, I think the greatest threat to our democracy is uh, disinformation and, and the breakdown of, we used to, we may have disagreed, but we agreed on what a fact was. And then, a few years ago, we had somebody propose the notion of alternative facts. Um, and so if we can't agree on facts, that creates a huge problem. And that, so then we get into echo chambers of confirmation bias. And confirmation bias simply means that we, we find, and, and not only do we find, but it finds us because of algorithms. You know, we do, do seemingly uh, um, we'll just do a search on our computer for, you know, nothing politically overt, but it sends a signal to an algorithm out there somewhere, and it starts sending you particular pieces of information, and it's very skewed, and it's designed to make you more partisan, and it's designed to make you less available to alternative pieces of information. So that's, that's the greatest problem. Now, the, again, I'm a prisoner of hope. So uh, I think that we we, we, hopefully we're becoming more sophisticated consumers and voters. We know now that in 2016, Macedonian teenagers were being paid money to pump in false information into our news systems, or where we get information from. They were making up stuff, getting paid for it, and there were Russian troll farms creating content. And we'll never know uh, to what extent that affected the election. Yeah. Maybe a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we know now that it did. And so um, I think there are, that was a signal to a lot of people to say, oh, I should, I should be more aware of the stuff I'm reading, question where it comes from, um, ask, be, be skeptical about where information sources are from. Also, I think there's a flight to quality, whether, it's, whether you get your news from the Atlantic or New York Times or those, those sort of branded big-time news organizations at a time when you know, there's a lot of upheaval are actually spending a lot of money and hiring a lot of journalists and doing a lot of good work. 
So yeah. uh, my fear is disinformation. My hope is that people are becoming more sophisticated about it. So you rolled in a couple of answers that I wanted to ask about, including the greatest threat. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to ask one more and then quick round robin. Uh, are we safe from election interference? <laughs> Nationally, internationally, we have AI. We have the robocalls from Biden in New, New Hampshire ahead of the prim primary a couple weeks ago. Well, yes, I think so, because uh, I, I think, listen, I don't think Bob Barr, Trump's election chief, 60 judges, on and on and on said, not only was there no election fraud, it was the safest election we've had in history, OK? And, and they're, uh, I mean, they're, and we're, we're still getting more and more information, knocking down every single claim uh, that was made in, in uh, 2020. Um, I, I, uh, I have a little bit of just anecdotal information, just in the sense that I, I come from Colorado. I mean, I live in Colorado now, uh, which is where I'm from originally. And Colorado uh, has had mail-in ballots for, I think, almost 20 years now. Um, and as part of our show, when all this stuff was happening about election interference and fraud and what have you, I went and did a, we did kind of a whole episode on, on looking into this sort of thing. Um, and I learned about it. And what I learned was so affirming. Uh, I'm, I may not have this exactly right, but it's pretty close. 98% of Colorado voters vote by mail, 98%. The every single vote is verified by an FBI-trained analyst. Every single vote, not randomly, every single vote is reviewed by a forensic FBI-trained analyst. Okay, so the reality is that voting by mail is safer than voting in person. Okay, now. I, it's interesting what's happening on the Republican side of the aisle now because uh, there are lots of Republicans who are saying, you know, the more we talk about male voting being a problem, the less our people are voting. And maybe we ought to get on the program and, and maybe suggest that it's okay to, to, to vote in uh, male voting. But listen, and, and I just, I saw, I mean, the, the, the whole fraud thing is so problematic because people, it's just like, just make shit up, you know? It's just like, you know, there were ballots there, were there ballots there, and then you just gotta go knock that down. No, that's not true, that's not true. That didn't happen, that didn't happen. The reality, listen, the other thing is, I having looked at it a lot, the, I'm not saying that voting fraud doesn't happen, but it happens almost never, and when it happens, it's almost always by mistake. You know, it's somebody that got out of prison and thought that they didn't realize that they couldn't vote now, and they voted. You know, it's not some organized, thing of conspiracy, things of teams of people. It just doesn't happen. It just does not happen. So uh, because of uh, what happened in 2020, I think the, the 2024 will be even safer, even better. So I, I'm not worried about it, but I'm worried about people saying that there will be fraud. And you know, we'll just do it 2020 all over again just because people say it is. Yes or no. <laughs> in the. Uh, foreseeable future, could our democracy fail? Will our democracy fail? Yes or no? I think it could, and, and uh, I, I really worry about it because of kind of my Mitt Romney example that I think I mentioned, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. Um, that it is such a, it's such a short-term experiment that we're on, and, and to see how, how close we came to, to somebody by fiat overturning a free and fair election. Yeah. Now listen, that's obviously my opinion, uh, but. Um, it's not what we wanted to hear. <laughs> and it wasn't a yes or no. Uh, uh, in three words or less, what's the thing that keeps you most uh, up, most at night? Three words or less. Uh, disinformation. In three words or less, what's the thing that makes you the most hopeful about our democracy? Just American people. I, I just think instinctively we're really good. You know, every time I get down about this, I get in a car and travel around America, and I stop in small towns, and people people are really good. 
Yeah. You know, there's fringes who are really screwed up, but most Americans are really good people. Let's open it up. Questions? Come on and let's get him on microphone just to make sure everybody can hear him. And first of all, I should say another, just add to what Leah said, a big, big thank you for you being here this evening. You're, you're so well versed. Appreciate it very much. You're so well versed in, from, a, from a really, really high viewpoint. And, and that's meaningful in what we're going through. My question is, when you said that about Biden and maybe Jill, you know, come July or something, whispers in his ear and said, you know, say maybe we shouldn't go forward with this. Is there any other trigger in your mind that might make that happen other than illness? I, I no, I, I don't see anything other than a health-related uh, issue, uh, but you know if you know as I said I you know I'm 70 or almost 70 and I I just know I've lost a lot of function and if I were 80 I know I've lost a whole lot more and it's just it's it's the the reason it's so painful for me is that it didn't have to be this way. I just think that Biden could have walked off stage, taken the gold watch, had a great four years, had a ton to leave as a legacy, and just told the Democrats to go at it, and that whoever got that nomination would be much stronger than he is now. Because the problem for Biden is, and I've seen some data recently that's really shocking. I mean, it's, and it's been shocking to really good Democratic friends of mine like James Carville and Paul Begal and people who I really admire and trust. And, and they're not people who panic easily. They're panicked. They're panicked. Uh, because they, the, the problem is that on these metrics, um, the one metric that is most problematic is that people don't think he has the mental or physical competence to be president. That's not going to get better a year from now. That's not going to be better nine months from now. There's no way that improves. And that's the metric where people are making the decision. They're just, it's not that they don't like him. It's not that they didn't think he did a good job. It's like he's too old for the job. Yes, Ray. Would you change your mind? If, for example, the Republican convention is in July, and if for some reason, we can all speculate, uh, Trump is not on the ticket, and you have a younger person, a Nikki Haley, who is now the Republican candidate, do you think that would uh, lead to the odds that Biden would withdraw at the convention, the Democratic convention? Which is in August. Which is in August, and considering, as you said, he's not getting any younger, and his polls are not getting any better. It's a good question, and I think the answer is yes. I think it would be a lot more pressure, because I think it would be a lot more obvious. I mean, he's, it's problematic now with Trump as the nominee. It'd be, like I said, it'd be double digits problems with Nikki Haley or somebody else. Right here. We have a student. Uh, first off, I like your hat. Um, Thank you. I, I, I'll take just a second to say uh, that, yes, it's an affectation, <laughs> but it's not a recent one. Mm. <laughs> There's not a picture of me growing up I don't have a hat on. Hmm. And, and this is called a, an open road Stetson. It's also called the president's hat, because this I'll is what LBJ wore, Truman, uh, George W. Bush. You, it's, 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 uh, it's kind of a formal little thinner brim, little, mm -hmm. uh, little dressier. Pardon me? Where did you get it made? Well, uh, <laughs> I, got, get it made? I got a couple custom guys that uh, do a little work for me on the side. Yeah, in Colorado. Aspen Hatters. OK, the okay. student's question. Yeah, more importantly. Uh, <laughs> What's you, more important? <laughs> do you think if uh, Trump was able to somehow run as a third party, it would give room in the Republican Party to kind of move past this Trump era of politics? 
Um, yeah, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting question because there was a time when a year ago I thought that there was a possibility that Trump would end up running as a third-party candidate because you could see where he could have legal problems that sort of bounced him out of the nomination, but he still has that, you know, really animated, dedicated base that's never going to leave him and that he could go really create problems as a, as a third party candidate. And that's why I thought that Ron DeSantis, when he originally looked like he might be pretty strong, said that he would endorse Trump if he were the nominee, because I think he was, he was worried about that possibility of Trump going off and being a third party candidate. And I think that was kind of a, uh, a strategy of DeSantis's to uh, keep him out from being a third party candidate. But, but I think that that's, I think the, the Trump version of the Republican Party will be a third party threat ongoing. Uh, because I think even when Trump leaves, that's going to be a movement that's going to sustain for a long time. We have another question. So considering what's happening in the Republican Party, <clears throat> how do we move forward when we have one party that is just under the thumb of a, a mob boss, a dictator, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. I mean, when you have legislation, I mean, this was a perfect example um, that was going to impact something that 95% of Americans want and a large majority of the Senate wanted, and it was a bipartisan effort, and two words from one person, and it was killed, and we can't seem to get people to stand up for what's right for America versus what's right for their political situation. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a question a lot of us are asking all the time. And um, we keep thinking we, we've reached a, a threshold or that the pendulum will swing. And I just think that we've hit that point. And I think that, <clears throat> I, I, uh, again, I. I Despite the, the problems that Biden has, I think that that the Trump's erratic behavior and doing the sorts of things that he's doing on that, on NATO, on Putin, you know, over time people are just going to say that's we we just can't. Uh, I may not be happy with Biden. I may not think he's totally up to the job, but we can't. We just can't tolerate the kind of chaos that this is likely to bring. And the only way that, I mean, the fever has to burn itself out. And the way the fever burns, by the way, this is why I do not support the notion of Trump not being able to be on the ballot. I think that'd be, it may be legally right, but it's politically a disaster. You talk about violence in the streets, keep Trump off the ballot, and I guarantee you we will, there will be violence in America. Um, you got to beat him at the ballot box. Uh, and, and, and by the way, if you don't, he'd just be more of a martyr. If he, if he tried to keep him off the back, you talk about people going crazy in the, the, the MAGA, MAGA land uprising. Oh, my God. Because, you know, they're, in their view, it's just it's a political partisan thing because you're afraid of his political power. And the only way you can you can't beat him at the ballot box. So you have to do it with judges. So uh, I, I don't I, 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 I don't see a scenario where. Uh, that's going to happen. I think it's going to. It could even be a unanimous vote against that. But I also think that that may be it's not cover because I, I want to give the justices more credit than that. But I think it will help them make a decision about his immunity case to say that 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 they'll knock down the notion that he that he has any immunity. So we have one question right here, and then uh, Robert, we're going to end with you in the very back row. Thank you very much. Yeah, Mark, can you speak to gerrymandering? How much do you think that is causing the polarization, and do you feel that we'll be able to move away from that? I think it's a huge problem. I, I, I really do, and it's uh, uh, it, it 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 simply reinforces all the partisan. Uh, reflexes that are out there, and and it, it, you, you all understand gerrymandering. It's just the drawing of districts in ways that protects incumbents, and it what it does is it makes these primaries not competitive. 
uh, it makes it, you know, in the, in the Democratic seats, it makes it more Democratic. In the Republican seats, it makes it more Republican. So we have very little representation from the middle. So it just exacerbates the problem that's already out there. Uh, I do think that um, there, are, there are a lot of people interested in reforming the system, and there are states that are experimenting with it. California, for one. Colorado uh, is, is doing the same. So there's, there's, uh, there's, there's some good efforts in the right direction on it, but a long way to go. And last question, Robert, in the back. You mentioned how miserable of a place Congress is now, and it's certainly always had its fair share of, of blowhards in it. But from seeming like it used to have at least attract a large portion of our best and brightest to now more of our loudest and dumbest, what, <laughs> what can be done, if anything, to re-engage those best and brightest to see running for public office as a viable career path and something worth doing? Well, uh, the need has never been greater. And, and, I, and as I look at, uh, I talk to students today, um, I, I'm, again, I say I'm a prisoner of hope, but that's what gives me hope is this seeing uh, the, the generation that's following us, that they are really smart, really animated, and, uh, and I think that there are going to be, for all the blowhards, we're going to start to see more John McCain's. And, you know, I, th I think about John McCain a lot. Um, uh, he was a true hero and a true patriot, and, and I, there's so many times where I wish that he were alive today to deal with Matt Gates or whoever it might be to just, just bring some, some, some backbone out there. Um, and, and by the way, just as a side note, uh, Joe Lieberman is the chairman of No Labels, and he's a guy I really adore. Uh, and again, if, whether or not you agree with his politics or not, he's, he's biblical in his word. Uh, and um, um, I'm just flashing back on great John McCain stories now. Um, but think about how, when you think about what could have been, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I mean, first of all, Joe Lieberman was uh, the vice presidential, on the vice presidential, uh, he was Gore's vice president uh, pick. Um, and uh, flash forward to 2008, John McCain and, and Lieberman were best friends. And McCain, this, this goes to this whole issue of uh, your message and your rationale for why you're running. McCain's message was so perfect because it reflected who he really was. His message was country over party. And you think about his history of being a POW guy. And, uh, uh, and he very seriously was considering making Joe Lieberman, a Democrat, his vice presidential pick in 2008. And he was going to do that. And it, just imagine how that would have been. I mean, it was so powerful to his message and who he was to say, I believe so much in my country that I'm willing to pick somebody from the other party to be on my ticket. And the reason that got blown up is because another one of McCain's little kind of uh, group of friends was Lindsey Graham. And Lindsey talks all the time. And Lindsey blabbed it to the press. And it got out. And as soon as it got out, it got killed in the crib because everybody went nuts and went to McCain and said, you can't do that. People are going to walk out of the convention, which, by the way, I think would have been great. That would have been great TV to watch people walk out of the convention. Um, but anyway, just uh, I'll tell you one little other side note. I did a weird thing with McCain. Uh, First of all, I always loved the guy, even during the Bush years when, when, when we were running against each other. I, I always really respected him. And then in 2004, they became good friends. And McCain uh, hosted a, a party, hosted the third debate, in, uh, which was in Arizona. And we went down there. And uh, there was a story on the television about a guy named uh, Pat Tillman, who was killed in friendly fire. And his number was 40. And there was a, the story on the TV was about in the corner of the room, and we're in the green room waiting for the debate, and McCain and Bush. And, and there's a story about Pat Tillman being killed, 
and a former teammate of his who played for the Denver Broncos who'd sewn his number 40 on his, on his uh, uniform and the NFL commissioner had fined him like a whole bunch of money and, and told him he couldn't wear the patch. And then it went to McCain on TV and McCain just blistered the commissioner and put him through an acid bath. So I didn't know McCain that well at that point. I walked over to him, I said, Senator, I just saw this news story and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate what you said. And this guy, Pat Tillman, was in, he, he was a $11 million a year NFL football player who left after 9-11 and signed up for Afghanistan and then was killed in friendly fire. It's just a horrible tragedy, but an amazing story of heroism and sacrifice. So I told McCain the story, I said, that meant so much to me, and there was a Sports Illustrated uh, cover at the time that said, don't ever forget this man, and I was afraid that I would, so I got his number tattooed on my shoulder. And McCain's like, oh, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and he made me strip down in the green room and show him this tattoo that everybody else thinks I got drunk on my 40th birthday party, but <laughs> it's, uh, but then I had this other really, just to, tell, just to give you a sense of McCain, um, uh, so we, we became friends after that, and he asked me to, he told me he was going to run for president, would I help him? And I said, I said, Senator, I'll mow your lawn if you want me to, I'll do whatever you want. I said, but I have a very weird caveat. And he said, what's that? I said, there's this guy named Barack Obama, uh, and he's like, Barack who? And uh, I mean, this is like early 2007. And, 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 you know, Obama's like a first-term senator. You know, he did the de he did the speech, and you know, yes, I mean, he was kind of kidding. He knew who he was, but the point was, I said uh, I've met Obama, and I had, and and I, it, I admired and respected him, and I didn't, you know, agree with him on a lot of stuff, but I thought his candidacy, which he was talking about at the time, would be good for the country. I thought it'd be good for the country to have Barack Obama run for president. And I said, Senator, if you win the nomination and he wins the nomination on the Democratic side, I'd be very uncomfortable being your attack dog attacking Obama. I mean, I'm still going to support you, uh, but I just don't want, I don't think I would be comfortable, nor would I be the right guy to be the trigger man against Obama. And so I would, if, if that happens, then I would step out for the general election. And he was like, Whatever. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, that's not going to happen. This guy, Barack Obama, is not going to win the nomination. He said, so, he said well, yeah, whatever. Well, knowing that, I, I, and that I knew that he'd forget, <laughs> I wrote a memo to the campaign saying, I just had this conversation. And also, I was afraid that I'd chicken out of it. <laughs> so I sent a memo to the campaign saying, if this happens and, and, and Obama's nominated, then I uh, want to step down for the general election. And then it happened. And then as I predicted, McCain completely forgot about it. <laughs> so I walk in with the memo and he's go, God damn it, McCain. <laughs> but he gave me a big hug and he said, you know, listen, it would be very un-McCain-like for you not to keep your word. So thanks for getting me here and God bless you. And so anyway. Mark. You are wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. This was great. Thank you so much. Uh, we cannot wait to have you back in September. I'm coming back. You're coming back. We'll have some new stuff to talk about. I'm A sure. lot will change. Thank, Thank you, you very much, and good night. Thank you.